Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Hello, I think we're uh, live. My name is Chris Thrill. Um, I'm a former Royal uh, Royal Marines Commando uh, turned author stroke adventurer. I've been invited to answer a few questions today by Lucy Nickel, who's uh, writing on behalf of, let me see now, Standard Issue Magazine, which I'm informed is Sarah Millican's magazine. So, uh, first question. Uh, when you decided that you wanted to join the Marines, what did you feel were the attributes needed to be successful? Why did you think this was the career for you? Um, right, I was homeless living in my car at the time. Uh, I had quite a challenging upbringing, I suppose you could say. Um, I got kicked out twice as a teenager. So I'm living in my car. My friend joined the Royal Marines. He bet me I wouldn't be able to do it in, you know, a boyish bet. And I said, yes, I can. And I went down and I signed up. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I joined. Very intense three-day course to get in, um, which I obviously passed. Now, what did I think were the attributes? I, I didn't think. I just took one step at a time. The recruiting brochure said this, 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 and this. You know, you'll do this three-day course to get in. You'll need to do... 80 push-ups, um, 20 pull-ups, you'll need to be able to run a mile in, in seven and a half minutes, this kind of thing. Um, and and swimming tests, which for me were the hardest. So I just thought about that, right, can I do this? Yes, I can do the press-ups. Can I do this? Yep, 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 right, I'm good to go. Let's go off to Limpson and do it. So that was as far as I've, I thought ahead. Um, obviously, there's standard um, recognised attributes that the Royal Marines will will expect you to possess. Um, one example of that is a, a, a sense of humour in adverse in adversity. Um, so basically, if uh, if you can keep a smile on your face when people are chucking hand grenades at you, then yeah, it's all good. Why did you feel this was the career for you? I was homeless and living in my car. I had no direction in life at all. I'd left school. You know, my favourite pastime was either skiving off or looking out the window. And honestly, I, I, I preferred looking out the window to doing the work in front of me. I, I had no direction, um, very little support. So, yeah, £250 a week 20 years ago at 17 years old. It was like 18, I think, by the time I joined. That was motivation enough. Okay, were you a confident person growing up? What do you think your schoolmates thought of you? Gosh. Um, was I confident? Well, I was an extrovert because unbeknown to me, I was always seeking attention. So I would be the, the guy that would climb the tree to get the football. Um... I got screamed at by my mother once she caught me climbing um, across a, a fast-flowing weir in a, in a river where, when it was in flood, 
um, to fetch, I don't know, it's like a, I don't even think it was to fetch a frisbee or something. I think I was just doing it because I was um, bet, bet by my fellow Boy Scouts. So, uh, yeah, I had outgoing confidence, loads of it. Um, I was quite aggressive. I never let myself be bullied, for example. But I guess inside, we all have a bit of doubt. Um, I think it's, it's how you're equipped to manage it. I probably bluffed it. Um, I lack confidence. Yeah, you know, I... I, I'm I, I'm not even sure I can answer it. You know, I think I lack confidence like a lot of people. I I had quite a, yeah, rough childhood, so that knocked a lot of the confidence out of me. I, I if I was being honest, what do I think my schoolmates thought of me? Oh, that's a bizarre question. I had a lot of girlfriends. That was one uh, nice part of a of a of a damaging childhood was the girls <laughs> always used to give me their packed lunches and um so that was you know that was one thing they thought about me uh another i met a guy i think 25 years after we went to school together and he he said chris out of everybody at school why are you not a millionaire he said you just always had that brain for you know, scamming, thinking ahead, planning, thinking outside the box, I guess. So it's like, yeah, I did. Uh, if you read my memoir, uh, Eating Smoke, One Man's Descent into Drug Psychosis in Hong Kong's Triad Heartland. There's a plug for you. Um, yeah, I went out to Hong Kong to seek my fortune. There was, you know, there was a few times I tried in life when I had um, opportunities put in front of me. One being the Marines, obviously, I succeeded. Uh, business in Hong Kong failed. Um, I won't say miserably because it, it's a cliche, but it's so true. You fail, fail your way to success. Um, how, how, how else can you get successful? So, yeah, I think that's what my schoolmates thought of me. I, 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 I had uh, one friend who, who eating smoke is uh, dedicated to. He just said, Chris, I always knew you as the guy that stuck up for the underdog. Um, you know, doesn't matter how big the bully was, you'd, you'd set yourself upon him. So that was that. Maybe there was negative stuff people thought about me. I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. Before trying crystal meth, what were your views on drugs? Had you dabbled, and if so, what were your views on meth specifically? Was it a big step trying it that first time? Right, I'll take that one at a time. What were your views on drugs? Uh, I was very sheltered from them growing up, probably like a lot of people in my generation. Um, not a good thing. I'm saying that as a, as a substance misuse specialist now. Um, just one of the many hats I wear. Um, yeah, I, I was born in that generation where everything was to be feared and, 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 and so no education was provided, no guidance was provided, no warnings were provided, particularly um, to broken people like me who, who were obviously going to have a problem if they tried drugs because um, when you 
take a chemical into your body and it makes you feel absolutely wonderful and it makes you feel the person that, you, that you've always wanted to be, of course you're going to take it again, aren't you? Because you seek that, that feeling and, and then you're going to take it again and you don't need to be Einstein to see that that's, that's addiction starting, that's the, the addictive cycle. So um, my views on drugs were pretty naive and, and, and until I was a young man, didn't really know much about them, thought they were scary, had scaremongering videos in the military um, that we had to watch. Uh, but nonetheless, I was always looking to for a high in, in whatever it was, um, whether it was jumping cars on my BMX. So yeah, I smoked uh, weed for the first time about 14, didn't really get anything from it, uh, got introduced to um, the dance scene when I was uh, like 22. And as anyone who will tell you, the, the early 90s dancing, just absolutely phenomenal. What a brilliant time in our lives. Uh, yes, we took a lot of uh, drugs, not huge amounts, but, you know, significantly. Um, marijuana, ecstasy, amphetamine, um, speed... Um, uh, <laughs> forgotten what drugs we took, coke, you, you get the picture. Um, so I didn't have a view on meth, I, I just got told about it when I arrived in Hong Kong, so I'd had this brilliant time on the dance scene, went to work every day, didn't, you know, never had, never really had a major issue, although there, there's, there's always going to be some snags on drugs, got to Hong Kong, got told that there's this drug called meth, um, it's a form of amphetamine. Got invited to smoke some in the toilet at work by a, by a friend of mine. And that was it. It was the drug for me. No, wasn't a big step trying it whatsoever. It was, yeah, give me some of that. I, I'll, I'll have a go. And it was just the drug for me. Horses for courses. It made me feel wonderful. I sat back down at my desk uh, in, in this office we worked in and I just had this amazing buzzing feeling just rushing through my body. The way I describe it in uh, Eating Smoke, which is my memoir, by the way, did I mention that? Uh, I describe it as, as sort of drinking the world's finest champagne, and um, but without the cloudy head that you get when you're drunk, so that kind of really nice pleasant feeling and that feeling quickly morphed into one of activeness and, and extreme um, energy and strength and and, and a real focus um, just made you feel absolutely phenomenal like you could tackle and achieve anything so that was my first time trying meth how do you see addiction is it a mental illness how would you describe it? It's very simple. Uh, addiction is a learned psychological illness, or better to say condition. Um, it's like the, the experiment where they had the rats in the caves, or is it Pavlov's dogs? You know, you, you put an animal in a cage, and if it learns to push a button, 
it gets a reward. The next day it pushes the button, it gets the reward. The next day it pushes the button, it gets a reward. The next day, when the re reward no longer uh, is there, in the case of the experiment, it's because the scientist is just simply taking it away. In the case of actual really taking drugs, it's it's when your life has started to descend into chaos and and uh, financial problems and 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 mental health conditions and and illness and and ev all, all the negatives you can think of. You know what what do you do? What does your brain do to tell you to fix all of that? Well, just like the rat in the cage, it's push the button because you've learned that's what you've learned to do. To, to cure all your ills, push the button. So what do you do? You take more drugs and you you get worse and you you get less money and you get ill health and you get tired and you lose your friends and you lose your jobs. Um, and of course, what have you learned? What has your brain learned to, to deal with that, to make yourself feel this wonderful person? Push the button, take more drugs. And that is addiction in its essence. And uh, I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead in the questions here, but, but the natural question is, well, how do you stop the addiction? Well, it's easy. You've got to unlearn it. You know, you, you have two schools of thought. You have the AA kind of approach and the um, Alcoholics Anonymous and NA Narcotics Anonymous. And they have kind of a, a, a like an axe. <laughs> stop taking the drug stop drinking that's it and what what they don't do is they don't take a scientific approach which is to say no you don't just stop you you unlearn it you've got to unpick this 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 thought pattern that you've got into you've got to unlearn it so you have um things like cognitive behavior behavioral therapy Everybody does it in their everyday lives. They just probably don't know it as CBT. CBT is you're going home from work. You've realized for some time now, maybe you've had a, an issue with drinking wine. It used to be a glass once a week. Then it sort of became a daily, you know, evening thing. Then it became, wow, I, I'm really looking forward to getting home from work and having a glass of wine and and it goes from being sort of eight o'clock in the evening to seven o'clock to six o'clock. I'm trying to uh, put a pattern across here that I think people will recognize. And then what happens is before you know it, you're on a bottle of wine in the evening or half a bottle or two bottles. And something in your brain is telling you that it's not right. And that is where you start to question the addictive behavior and if you look up Prochaska and De Clemente they came up with something called the cycle of addiction and for anyone that that thinks they might have a problem or they want to understand a loved one or just if you're a professional and this is what you deal with and um, you know understand the cycle it's called the cycle of change and it just talks about how someone will be addicted and they won't admit it. They're in denial. They're saying, oh, you know, I drink, but I go to work. So I can't I can't be an alcoholic because I work or, you know, I don't drink when I'm around my children. So, you know, I can't be. And, and, and it's all this kind of false justification, as it were. 
um, you know, I, I, I get drunk because all my friends are getting drunk, so it's okay. You know, this kind of thing. And then you, you get that day where you wake up and you think, you know, something's not right. I'm, I'm, I've had an argument. I've embarrassed myself. Or, um, you know, I, 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 in, in my case, I, I had needle marks up my arms for crying out loud. You know, it was, they weren't even, you know, clean marks. They, they, my arms were just a bloody mess in the end. And, and it's that point, you know, you got, you, you start to question you start to rationalize, hang on, like, like I'm addicted here, aren't I? You know, I, I, I've kept doing this for quite some time now. And that's called the contemplative phase. Then you have the um, action phase. You actually start to decide to do something about it. And I'm just going to talk very quickly through it because it's not the point of this interview. But you take action, your life gets slightly better. So you keep, you sustain that action and then you get to a challenge. And of course, what does your addictive mind tell you? It tells you to, to get over this challenge, this hurdle, to fix this argument you might have. You go and take the drug or you drink the wine and you do that and you fall back into that pattern of doing that on a daily. And then you wake up again that day and you say, oh, hang on. I said I wasn't going to do that, didn't I? I, I, I said... I was going to change that behavior and then you remind yourself of why you're going to change you're going to change it because you've got kids for crying out loud you've got to set a, an example to them you, you, your work was suffering you didn't want to get out of bed in the morning you permanently had a hangover and were looking forward to getting rid of it by drinking um, you embarrass yourself whether it be on social media or whatever anyway we've all been there but that is CBT cognitive behavioral therapy you are changing your thinking thus changing your behavior that's cbt so that's that and it takes a while uh i'd say for myself it's it's been a lifelong learning process of 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 adjustment and and that simply that contemplating thinking Right, you know, what is this behavior doing for me? What What's the damage to my body? What's the effect on my relationships? And, and of course, it's also been a, a, a lifelong of taking the action and adjusting and giving up drinking here and there and da-da-da-da-da. And eventually you, you do become stronger at it and you get so much um, improvement in your life and you get so much come to you it might be a family, it might be a baby, it might be a, a, a better house, it might be that you're, you're you're taking holidays again, or you or for some people you go on your first holiday, and and that in itself is just enough to want to keep this behaviour going, and you realise that just pushing that button in the cage, it's never going to get you to where you want again. It just gets you in the cycle. So anyway. That's it. Finally, you get to the stage which is known as maintenance and you're able to maintain that behavior. Why? Because you've relearned, um, you know, you, you've relearned your cognition, you've relearned your behavioral patterns. So back to the questions. Um, you experienced a prolonged psychotic episode while taking meth. Yes, I was in psychosis for on and off for probably six or seven months. Um, psychosis, it's like a psychotic illness, right? 
So you're you're stepping out of reality and you're stepping into your own your brain's own version of reality. You've taken so much of a drug that your synapses in your brain, ra rather than talk to each other like this, da 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 da, all not all nice and uh, smooth, this, they're talking to each other like this, and they're firing off the neurons and they're going all over the place instead of to the receptors that they should. And so your brain is telling itself um, a, a different version of reality. So, uh, sorry, I'm just reading the questions down here. Um, have you experienced any ongoing psychological issues since coming off it? Has the experience affected you long term? Um, no, I think my psychotic episode was just linked to the meth. Um, I, I certainly think drugs affect you long term, depending on how much you take. Um, I. I'd seriously warn anyone against LSD. I think it can be fine if, if, if for some people, but um, I'd say I think LSD is is very damaging. It, it can, I think it can have a severe effect on your nervous system, and as a result, your your lifelong sort of anxiety is, you know, always just that little bit closer to you. If, if that makes sense. I, you get anxious more more easily. Um, if someone were to suggest you become a, a meth addict, I guess that is you were to become a meth addict when you first joined the Marines. What would you have thought? Ah, uh, you you can't think with addiction. If you could think, you wouldn't get addicted. You know, I was told when I was taking the meth, Chris. You know, you're an addict, dude. And to me, it was like, well, yeah, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I mean, I'm taking it every day. I'm taking it at every opportunity. I'm spending all my money on it. Ah, shit, yeah, I'm, they're right. <laughs> you know, it, it, eventually you you can't deny it to yourself. Um, so do you experience any stigma when people learn of your past and particularly the psychotic episode you experienced. Scrolling down the questions here. Um, do you know what? I'm, I'm honestly going to say I, I sensed a bit of unease. Uh, I think from probably two people in the time since I've written my book. And Eating Smoke has been out now about eight years. And I've had two people that I could tell were like, do you, are you not, you know, are you okay, like, sharing? And I can tell you what it is, or what I, at least I, what I think it is. It's that those people weren't comfortable in their selves. They were kind of putting themselves in my position and thinking, hell, I wouldn't share this information. You know, God, what would people think of me? And, um, yeah, I probably won't surprise you to know I absolutely couldn't care less what people think about me. I have just two loyalties in life. One is to my beautiful family and the other is to my small circle of friends that are, that I know that approve themselves to be my friends. Um, don't spend your life worrying about what other people think. I wanted to become a, an author. I wanted to prove that I could write, and I and I and I think because of my fractured upbringing, 
I wanted my five minutes of fame or my 15 minutes of fame, whatever it is. And, and that's why I started writing. And I got that, you know, I, I, I got much more than that. I just created an amazing life for myself. Um, I have the most beautiful partner that I, I only ever could have dreamed of when I was in the depths of despair. I have a little boy that he's, you know, he's my boy. And he's just so good. If you could speak to Mother Nature and you could design your own child, then Harry is it. He's, he's, he's just the most wonderful thing that's ever come into my life. Uh, him, his mother, and my family. And, you know, I, I don't really care what people think. And I think most people are nice. I think most people realise everyone has issues of, 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 of a sort in that. Did you know of anyone in the Marines, while you were in the Marines, who experienced mental illness? How was it looked upon? The short answer is no, not really. Uh, for the most part, we were all fit young men. Uh, they used to have something called a basket weavers course. Um, excuse me. Won't surprise you to hear that's uh, where people were sent if they had problems with alcohol, which is a massive uh, issue in the forces. So if you consider that addiction is a mental health illness, um, which I do, then yeah, I guess it was around me a lot. You know, we were all, us youngsters, we were budding alcoholics, I guess. Um, but to answer that question directly, no, I, I, I didn't, you know, see anyone have psychotic episodes or, or, or this kind of thing. Um, right, Lucy, that's it. If anyone's got any questions, I'd, I'd strongly suggest you read my book, uh, Eating Smoke, One Man's Descent into Drug Psychosis in Hong Kong's triad heartland. Uh, my email is on my website, christhrall.com. I offer my services for free to anyone who's struggling with drugs or alcohol uh, or their families. So uh, yeah, don't be a stranger, get in touch. And a massive thank you to Lucy Nickel and to Sarah Millican and her standard issue magazine. Uh, thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.